I'm going to start with thanks. I'm going to start with, first of all, thanking everybody in this room for coming. And I'm also going to just thank, this is much more than formal thanks, those people also in this room who have organised this. Anne Caesar, absolutely wonderful. I know she is the, the inspiring person. She's the one that fought with the Cyclops and said, want to do this, and organised it. Uh, Christina, who helped so much in contacting former students. The wonderful Loredana, who has worked tirelessly on all of this. And especially Roberta Warman. Roberta Warman, who is the woman who I have always said, if you want anything done in this university, go to Roberta Warman, because she can sort it out. She knows what she's doing. And she has organised this magnificently. And I want to thank also all the, the, the chairs and the speakers. John, it's quite right about the tango. It's quite true. We did teach, in fact, that my happiest, and one of the things I've actually written is that one of my happiest teaching experiences, probably the happiest teaching experience with Warwick, was when we co-taught. We taught Latin American culture and society, we taught Latin American poetry, we taught comparative literature of the Americas, and it was great. And sometimes we just had to improvise, and we always improvised. When we improvised, it was as though we, we knew the tunes already, and that was lovely. Keith has presented himself as... What did you, what did you present yourself as, Keith? Professor of what? Marketing strategy or something like that. Of course, he started out when he started out um, at Warwick. He was um, in history of education. Prior to that, he was a classicist, and um, he's another person that's reinvented himself over and over. And he is the person who, when he and I were writing an essay together, which we subsequently published, one of our colleagues referred to it as this muck that you are writing, <laughs> Susan. Um, so it was, yeah. And Michael has been an absolutely wonderful friend uh, over many, many years and one of the people whose work I've always admired most in our English department. So thank you all. And thank you, speakers. I'm going to start very, very briefly. I'm not going to talk for an awful long time. My children have said, don't go on, Mum, for goodness sake. We've got to get home, we're hungry. Um, and so I'm, I'm just going to say a few words about everybody before I read you what I've actually written. Loridana, I was Loridana's external examiner for her MA thesis many years ago. And then I was her supervisor. And I've always been incredibly impressed by Loridana's, let me patronise a moment and say mental agility. Extraordinary mental agility to move. She, she's become one of the really key experts on translation and travel, and it's been a joy to watch her develop and wonderful to listen to her today. Michael. When did I first meet Michael? I can't properly remember when I first met Michael, but I do remember how I first met him. I was sent a manuscript by Cork University Press. Um, so Michael will remember what year that was. It's going back a bit. Was it? And I thought, wow, this is really good. This is really a new voice. This is someone who has something to say. Because one of the problems with translation studies, as with any field, is when you, you start out full of excitement, and then over the years you think, oh, Lord, 
not another article in which there's me, the nerdy, Trivedi, and so on, quoted, and oh, dear me, go and do something new. When I had Michael, I thought, oh, someone new. And Michael's also quite right. Michael, I thought the story you were going to tell was that wonderful occasion, and I'm not going to say who, who it was, when we found ourselves with a somewhat, um, shall we say, lugubrious colleague um, from the far north who, at what was supposed to be a rather jolly afternoon, sitting in the sunshine, drinking a few beers, began asking us if we had thought much about our own deaths. And had we, had we planned our funerals? And this was not a joke. And the more he went on about how you planned your funeral, and I remember Michael saying to me, Susan, tell some stories. Tell the one about... And I was going through my old repertoire of kind of ludicrous comic anecdotes, anything to stop this man continuing to ask us how well our deaths were planned. <laughs> now, Edwin, we met in, in Leuven, and again, I remember thinking with, with Edwin, yup, now here's someone who's really sort of going places. And I think one of the great things that has happened over the years is that, that when you travel a lot and when you move around a lot and so on, you periodically meet someone who you, you hear and you think, that's, a, that's an unusual voice. That's someone who's going to, whose voice we're going to hear. I imagine that, the, 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 I suppose you'd call it talent spotting. I imagine this is how finding singers and finding musicians works. You find people, a lot of you in this room are people, many of my former PhD students who are now eminent and rising in eminence in their own rights, were people who I thought, yeah, there's something there. They've got some, some voice. Harish, you've heard about the um, Shakespeare event. Every time Harish tells this story, he gets a little more miffed about the fact that his paper wasn't accepted. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that, actually. What I do remember was that Harish opened a whole new way of thinking about um, Shakespeare and India and from there into thinking about Indian um, comparative literature. And it's through, through Harish that I first encountered Sri Aurobindo and a whole host of Indian writers and thinkers. So always been very grateful for that. John, I don't remember. I know I was part of the Radical Shakespeare group. I think we met in Weimar, one of the Shakespeare days. I think it was then. And it must be, it must be sort of like 1981 or something. It's a very long time ago. But it's not as long as the time when I met Vita. And I want to just tell you for a brief moment about Vita, and then I will go on to saying something, um, hopefully a little more scholarly. I met Vita at my first ever conference in East Anglia, a comparative literature conference in 1975. And I remember being absolutely terrified because I had only just finished my PhD and I had never given a conference paper. And I dressed for the occasion. I dressed, I still remember what I was wearing. I had a brown roll neck jumper, I had a long brown skirt. And thanks to the friend who uh, John has just mentioned, Peter, who liked to walk about with the model of the Parthenon on his head and who has since moved to live in Greece, I had some wonderful, <laughs> I had some wonderful Greek silverware. And I wore this 
marvellous thing of this, this belt. And David Bellos, who was there that day, told me about 20 years later that when he saw me, he re said I reminded him of Bodicea. Because I had, this, I had all this, this ludicrous stuff, and it was a kind of breastplate to defend me against what was going to happen. But at that conference, I met two groups of people. I met a group of very beautiful, extremely jolly, very lively Italians, one of whom was Vita Fortunati. The other was our dear friend Giovanna Franci, who sadly is no longer with us. And this jolly group of Italians. And I also met another group of completely lunatic people, <laughs> one of whom, during the plenary lecture given by René Wellick, rushed down to the front of the stage, grabbed a microphone when asked about questions, and said, Why are you listening to this stuff? This is so boring. And that was Itamar Evan Zohar. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the, the following evening, as I recall, we adjourned, we, we adjourned to a pub. I don't remember much about it, but I do know that that was how I met André Lefebvre. I met Itamar. And so the translation studies group and this Italian group, we all met. And as André was very fond of saying, there was no serious... Um, theoretical underpinning at all. It's just that we all like to have a few beers and to have, you know, to talk well into the night and to party a bit. And that was how it started. It started light-hearted. <coughs> now, some years ago, I was invited by the Times to write about one of these things about what is the book that changed your life? And I chose Michel Foucault's L'Histoire de la Folie which in English is Madness and Civilization. And I chose that book because it had made me, I read it when I was in my late 20s, and it made me think differently about so many things, and principally about what is the boundary between what is defined as madness and what is defined as sanity. And even more crucially, who decides on what that boundary shall be? Foucault traces in his book how attitudes to madness change as definitions change. He points out that in uh, the Middle Ages, the mad were soulful. This, of course, is where the word silly comes from, silly, full of, full of soul somehow, um, touched by God, and therefore as mad, deserving or needing to be set apart somehow, set outside the city gates or... As we know, we are sent off in the notorious ships of fools in the German river. So the mad were somehow isolated. And then, of course, in the 18th century, as we know, attitudes to the mad had changed so that visits to madhouses were regarded as a good afternoon's entertainment for the bored aristocracy. You went to look at the mad. And in my teens, I can remember my grandmother's husband telling me, that nothing had changed in the 1920s in England after the First World War, and that he had for a time worked in <coughs> and seen madhouses in Yorkshire, where the mad, damaged by what they'd experienced in the trenches of the First World War, were chained to walls and slept on straw. And that in the 1920s. But what really thrilled me about this little book of Foucault was not just that he posed this great question about how madness is distinguishable from sanity. And the answer, of course, is that madness is culturally determined. It's not an absolute state. Madness is, is arguably 
differently interpreted at different moments in time in different cultures. But he also pointed out that once you make a distinction and once you create a boundary, say the boundary between manliness and sanity, somehow you've got to keep that boundary policed. And we know only too well how often a state has been created. This is the whole history of colonialism and it's also the history of Europe, history of so many uh, parts of the world, how a state is created and it immediately sets up boundaries, borders, barbed wire fences, watchtowers, manned with soldiers, with machine guns. And so it is also with the borderline between madness and sanity. And with that border, the policing is undertaken by people from many professions, doctors and psychiatrists who can establish a clinical case, lawyers who can argue in court whether somebody who's just chopped their wife and children to pieces and put the bits of their body in suitcases is mad or not. In my view, mad as a box of frogs, but that is, you know, clearly... On a, in legal terms, um, someone has to decide on that. And all these policing systems, these legal, criminal, medical systems, are all established with their own codes, their own rules, their own languages, most of which are impenetrable to anybody looking in on them from outside. And so structures of power are then set up. Structures of power that exclude the vast majority of people, not only from understanding how they operate, but also often from seeing that they operate at all. So reading Foucault opened up a huge range of issues for me, a great universe of different issues, political, spiritual, religious, civil, historical, practical. And above all, here was a writer who rejected absolutes, who hinted at alternative perspectives, who invited readers to rethink certainties. And I still admire Foucault, Because my work has been, all my life, about rejecting certainties, about trying to look at things with more than one pair of eyes, and about struggling with absolutes. The Ithaca poem is so... I've related so strongly to that poem for so many years because I do really powerfully identify with it. And it seems to me that moving between languages and translating is actually the quickest and most immediate way of understanding that there are more many ways of looking at the world. Because languages are different, and you cannot express yourself in the same way in more than one language. One of the quotes that every student in this room has been forced to practically memorise is Edward Sapir's famous statement that no two languages are ever sufficiently similar to be considered as representing the same social reality. The worlds in which different societies live are distinct worlds, not merely the same world with different labels attached. And no two translations of a text are ever the same. It's a common truism that if you have a dozen people the same text to translate, you'll get a dozen different versions. They might differ subtly, or they might differ not so subtly. And that, of course, is because there is no such thing as an ideal translation, just as there's no such thing as an ideal or perfect reading. Every one of us, when we read anything, brings all that we are into that reading. We bring our life history onto the page. We are shaped, our reading is shaped by our age, class, gender, religion, nationality, by whatever we may happen to have read, dozens and dozens of other factors. And translations show up 
those differences in reading and understanding. And to illustrate my point, I'm going to just read you the opening lines of what is probably my favourite work of all literature, Dante's Divina Commedia. Then I'm going to give you three well-known English versions. Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita, mi ritrovai per una selva oscura, che la diritta via era smarita. Here's OUP version, 1966. In the middle of the journey of our life, I came to myself in a dark wood, for the straight way was lost. Version 2, another Oxford one, 1993. Halfway along the road we have to go, I found myself obscured in a dark forest, bewildered, and I knew I had lost the way. And the famous Penguin, 1949. Midway this way of life we're bound upon, I woke to find myself in a dark wood where the right road was wholly lost and gone. Now, all these three versions tell us someone's lost in a forest. <laughs> One of them has a bit of a go at rhyme, but actually, if we pause with that for a moment, they're all offering very different perspectives on the same scene. Was this traveller asleep? As the penguin version, I woke to find myself in a dark wood, seems to suggest the traveller was asleep. Had something happened to him that he came to? as Durling suggests. And what does the sentence, find myself obscured in a forest, actually mean? It's not even English. What is it? Now, these might seem very, very slight shifts, but my point is that these very slight shifts change the meaning radically. And probably most importantly of all, those three lines, three of the most memorable lines in Italian literature, have become something really utterly banal and totally forgetful, forgettable in English. Rather dull English. Now, it's very easy, of course, to attack translations and to show what's lost and what damage translators have done to an original. And so a very large part of my work for many, many years has been trying to counter that, to say, OK, fine, we accept that things are lost. But translation is a highly skilled activity, a very, very skilled activity. And inevitably, though, things are lost because you cannot have sameness between two languages things also can be gained. And often, of course, a translation can become a great work in the second language. And a large part of what translation studies has been about has been studying what happens to a text when it is transferred into that second or target language, as we call it. And I think it's very interesting that the reception of a text and reception studies and translation studies have kind of come along parallel tracks have opened up all sorts of avenues for further exploration. I want to give you an example of something that can happen, how a translation moving into another literary system can be transformed and something can happen to it that the translator never even imagined. And my example, famous example, Ezra Pound. 1915, he brings out a little collection of poems called Cathay. Now... Poems are translated from the Chinese, but the title page says the, the, the poems are, for the most part, from the Chinese of Rihaku, from the notes of the late Ernest Fenelosa, and the decipherings of the professors Mori and Ariga. So not directly from the Chinese then, which of course has led some critics to attack Pound for his ideas about what a translation meant since he appeared to be using other people's work as a filter. And to my deep dismay, this argument is still going on. 
Is it a translation if you take a series of other works, if you, if you don't have a, a perfect knowledge of the source language? And I would argue very strongly, yes, it is. Otherwise, so many, of our, so many great poets couldn't have translated because you don't have to have perfect, absolute knowledge of both languages in order to translate. And if we were going to take questions, which we're not, because my children will not forgive me because we have to go home and have dinner, uh, that is probably one of the things that you might argue with. Now, Pound, as a good modernist, with T.S. Eliot, his fellow countryman, had long recognised the interconnection between literatures, the endless flow of writing across borders. And he also understood that translation means much more than just deciphering a set of linguistic signs and trying to bring them literally into another language. His cassette came out at a time when there was great interest in the Orient, when intellectuals and artists and wealthy collectors in Europe were looking beyond Europe. And some of you may have read... Or, and if you haven't, do go and read it, Edmund de Waal's marvellous little book, The Hair with Amber Eyes, which one's won all sorts of prizes in the last um, 18 months super book. But nobody, least of all Pound, could have anticipated what would happen with his little book when it appeared. And I remind you, 1915, the First World War had been going on for a year and had changed lives across Europe forever. And the elegiac tone of Pound's translations led to them not being read as Chinese translations principally, but being read as poems that spoke to the moment, that spoke to the anguish of a continent torn apart by war. I'm just going to read you a few lines from a very famous poem, Lament of the Frontier Guard. I climb the towers and towers to watch out over the barbarous land. Desolate castle, the sky, the wide desert. There is no wall left to this village. Bones white with a thousand frosts. High heaps covered with trees and grass. Who brought this to pass? Who has brought the flaming imperial anger? Who has brought the army with drums and kettle drums? Barbarous kings. A gracious spring turned to blood-ravenous autumn. A turmoil of war's men spread over the Middle Kingdom. 360,000 and sorrow. Sorrow like rain. Sorrow to go and sorrow, <clears throat> sorrow returning. Ezra Pound, Chinese translator, had a huge success as a war poet. These poems were read in a different context and hence acquired a completely different meaning. Now, one of the things you'd learn when you study literature comparatively is that the artificial borders between literatures, the borders that say, this is English and that is literature française, borders that are enshrined in textbooks, in schools, in universities, are actually nonsensical. Everywhere there is connection, said Matthew Arnold in his inaugural lecture at Oxford in 1857. No single event, no single literature is adequately comprehended except in relation to other events, to other literatures. Once I found that lecture, when I read that lecture, I put it in my PhD thesis, I related to it wholeheartedly because I've never wanted to stay within the boundaries of one literature. I've always wanted to range out because it seemed like a more natural way to read. And if I think back, I can't remember a time when I wasn't also reading, not just across literatures, but across all kinds of other boundaries. Epic poems, philosophy, popular fiction. 
I was absolutely delighted when we gave an honorary degree to Terry Pratchett here at Warwick because he was one of my heroes. And I only started reading him because of my children. I read biographies, I read travel accounts, I read children's books, I read histories of science, anything and everything. And the wonderful thing about judging literary prizes, which I do more and more as I get older, is that you constantly have a great host of new things to read, things that you wouldn't otherwise come across. I had 164 novels for the Dublin Impact Prize this year, and many of those writers I'd never even heard of. My children, I think, probably don't realise the extent to which they have influenced my reading and have taught me things. Sometimes not by coming up and saying, dearest mother, read this book, but just by <laughs> talking about things or having a book lying around or mentioning someone, and I've gone off and looked it up and found it and enjoyed it. And as I said before, the courses that I most enjoyed at Warwick, that I loved, were the courses that John and I took. And I, 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 I'm, you invited me years and years ago, I think it was 1986, to write an essay on Latin American women's writing. And out of that, I got more and more into Latin American women's writing. And so my collection of poems and my translations of Alejandro Pizarnik all came out of that. So I actually owe you a very great deal. Pizarnik, Argentinian poet, marvellous neglected poet, though one of my former students has done her PhD thesis and published a splendid book on Pizarnik, and I did notice, I have to boast, that amongst some of the people mentioned today, Elsa Vera, my former student. <coughs> yep. A um, whole host of people. There was somebody else mentioned who's a former student um, who was cited as a distinguished person. I love that. Um, it's, it's really nice. It's great when your former students go off and write wonderful things or whatever. But I want to just read you one tiny little poem of Pizarnik in my translation to tell you why I related so strongly to this particular writer. It's called Suspicion. Mother used to tell us about a white forest in Russia and we'd make little snowmen and we'd put hats on them that we took from great-grandfather. I would look at her with suspicion. Whatever was snow, why make men out of it? And above all, what was a great-grandfather? <laughs> it's a wonderful poem about the, the immigrant experience, the second generation. Now, when I thought I was going to reflect, I thought, right, one of the things I'm going to reflect on is I'm not just going to tell comic anecdotes. I'm going to reflect on those writers that have had the greatest influence on me personally. So I started jotting them down. And I started, the first one that came to mind, obviously, Dante, Homer, especially the Iliad, which I had to read at my Scuola Media in Rome in an 18th century Italian translation. Virgil, who entered my life around the same time and has never left. Shakespeare, of course. And the very first performance I ever saw of a Shakespeare play was As You Like It, directed by my mother in the Embassy Gardens in Lisbon in 1953 for the Queen's coronation. <coughs> but the very first play I ever read of Shakespeare's was The Tempest, in an abridged version, and I was six. <coughs> now, my schooling, to put it mildly, was bizarre. A series of schools in different countries, very different <coughs> curricula. The Lisbon School, the first one, was a sort of mid-20th century dame school. And the curriculum included daily Bible study, history of art, known as picture study. The teacher, who was the wife of the English canon, had been an artist model and was particularly fond of teaching children about history of art. 
Uh, we read literature. We, after The Tempest, we read an abridged version of Piers Plowman. And we did something called, we, had, we did handwriting, and we did something called sums, which, since this was a school taught by an Englishwoman, consisted of doing problems using imperial measures. And since I had grown <coughs> up in metric systems, this has probably put me off mathematics for life. I had a spell in an American school where we pledged allegiance to the flag every morning. I also spent some weeks periodically in schools where I was the only child not wearing a uniform, and that was pretty uncomfortable. But what I learned through all this moving around and all these schools was to listen and to observe how other people did things. And I do believe that my, my love of moving around between cultures comes from that early peripatetic training. And, let's be honest, from the terrible insecurity that comes with it when you move, when you change language, when suddenly you leave everything familiar and you're thrown into an unfamiliar environment. As a small child, what I read most, since we lived in a, uh, a villa in a village outside Lisbon, it was totally isolated, and there were no libraries or anything, I read comics. Comics were sent to me from... England by my grandmother and the one in particular that I had was a comic called Girl and on the back page of Girl I see Jennifer nodding Jennifer and I of the same generation the back page of Girl I think she's heard this story a thousand times it used to serialize lives of great women and I can remember many of those women there were queens obviously you know Elizabeth I Mary Tudor Mary, Queen of Scots. There was also Matilda and my great favourite, the Empress Adelaide, wife of the Emperor Otto II, the Holy Roman Emperor. How on earth a girl's comic in England in the 1950s serialised the life of the Empress Adelaide, I've no idea, but I loved it. Florence Nightingale was in there. Um, holy women, St Margaret of Scotland, Perpetua, Mary Slessor, and... Obviously, the Bruntys and Jane Austen, but the other ones that I remember most particularly, the women travellers. Mary Kingsley, Isabella Bird, Gertrude Bell, Freya Stark. And as soon as I possibly could, I, when I eventually got to libraries, I followed those women up. And I do believe that my kind of passionate belief in the power of women in the great strength of women and the importance of finding role models for women that are not pop stars comes from my reading of comics. <coughs> so I would recommend the reading of comics. <laughs> Back in England in my early teens, though, I was fortunate enough to have a great aunt, great aunt Mary. She'd been an English mistress and when she died, she left me her library. And she introduced me to a great host of English writers that I'd never come across before. Through her, I found Thomas Hardy, I found Browning. She was very into Victorians. I found the great Victorians. But she also introduced me to Russian and to French writers, to Turgenev, to Eugène Sue, to a great host of writers that I don't know how I would otherwise have encountered. And she taught me something else. She said, it is terribly important throughout your life to go on rereading things you read before. And I do this. Regularly, I reread because as you reread, you rediscover, you find other things, and you go back and you, your reading alters. But then at university, I discovered how to travel through literature. 
the old training, very interesting training, I had three subjects in my first year, Latin with set texts, <coughs> Italian with set texts, and English. And we didn't have set texts in those days, we had set authors. You were given the authors, five authors per year. I remember saying, well, what do I do? And they said, read everything. <laughs> what? You read everything. And you read anything you could lay your hands on, and you also had to read around those writers. The, the critical studies of the writers, biographies of the writers, though biography was a bit, seemed a bit frowned on. Um, and you read other writers in order to be able to locate your particular writers in a milieu. And it was at university that I acquired a lifelong passion for Anglo-Saxon. Some of you know and some of you don't that my very first job was teaching Anglo-Saxon and early Middle English. And I discovered some of the writers that have become central and to whom I go back over and over again. In particular, John Donne, little quote. But, oh, alas, so long, so far, our bodies, why do we forbear? They're ours, though they're not we. We are the intelligences, they the sphere. Spanish mystical poet, San Juan de la Cruz, Entrame donde no supe, y quédame no sabiendo, toda ciencia trascendiendo. Which in Roy Campbell's <coughs> translation is, I entered in, I know not where, and I remained, though knowing naught, transcending knowledge with my thought. And Gerald Manley Hopkins, oh, the mind, the mind has mountains, cliffs of fall, frightened, frightful, sheer, no man fathomed, hold them cheap, may who ne'er hung there. And as I was writing my little list for my reflections, I thought they're all poets. The people that have had the most formative influence on me have all been poets. It's Poets, poetry is what I go back to when I, I, I feel in need emotionally or whatever. I go back in all sorts of times to poets. And I think that's because poetry is language. It involves shaping sensations of the mind, body and spirit into words. And translating poetry involves that double shaping. You, have, you are engaging with the shaping that someone else has done and then you are trying to reshape it. I thought also... Uh, of the enormous significance of those early years in that strange little school of the Bible study. And one of the texts, again, that I go back to over and over are the Psalms. A translation, a wonderful translation in the Book of Common Prayer. And here, for example, I think, I think some of the things in the Psalms are so remarkable, um, and there are images. And here in Psalm 22 is just a verse that I think expresses the absolute depths of despair into which a human being can fall. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart also, in the midst of my body, is even like melting wax. And then in Psalm 114, the opposite, when all nature rejoices. The mountains skipped like rams, and the little hills like young sheep. And I love that, and I think of that so often when I drive down Wensleydale. The mountains are skipping like rams and young sheep, and the sheep are skipping around, and so are the mountains. But if my great-aunt Mary was a formative influence on me in my teens, and if my experience in university was formative as well in showing me to range outwards, so I think the formative influence on my university career 
is the late lamented Agostino Lombardo, who was my professor in Rome. His philosophy of teaching was absolutely fundamental. Your task, he used to say to me, is to plant seeds in students' minds. Don't expect any instant results. Only a very small number of students will give you the satisfaction of instant results. Not all your class is going to come out with first-class degrees and remarkable essays and so on and so on. What you have to do is show your students ways of discovering things for themselves. And when you teach, the real results are not what shows up in examinations, but what is remembered long, long after studying has ended. I was very, very moved when Edwin talked about seeds and used precisely that image and said that, that I had effectively planted a seed in his head back 20-odd years ago, which uh, I, I couldn't have a, a, a better tribute than that because uh, that was precisely Lombardo's philosophy and it is a philosophy that I've tried to maintain. So summing up my life as an academic as a writer, as a woman, and as a mother, I can see that a recurring theme has been trying to cross boundaries, resisting being pigeonholed as this or that, and always rejecting the label of expert. And many of you in this room have heard me say to you when you come along saying, oh, there's so much I haven't read. I think, just to say, look, if you've chosen to work in comparative literature or translation studies, you are doomed to be perpetually ignorant. Because you can't. You know, you, if you want to be an expert, go and do research on English restoration drama between, 80, between I don't know, 1710 and 1715, and then you've got a good chance of becoming an expert. Take that one bit. Otherwise, doom yourself to ignorance, because out of ignorance comes exploration. If you feel you're an expert, you're lost. And I, I know many of you have come into my office saying, oh, I don't know enough, and gone out thinking, well, I don't know enough, but I don't know, maybe. I think I'm very fortunate that as a literary person, there's not really any such state as retirement. I'm never going to stop writing. I'm never going to stop reading. And one of the things you learn, again, the older you get, is, is how little, actually, you do know. I wish, I wish I had more time left, and I am aware that, you know, I'm now thinking finitely. I'm not looking ahead to another 40 years by any means. I'd be very lucky if I have another 20. Um, so my attempts on, you know, there are languages I'm never going to learn. My pitiful efforts to learn Welsh, which I'm still trying... It's, they are pitiful. I do try. John Dukakis has helped me a lot, since despite his Greek name, he's a native Welsh speaker. But it's, it's, my Czech has all but disappeared, and I never managed to get into ancient Greek despite several starts. But I can actually read lots of languages in translation, and I do. And because I understand translating, and because I've always had more than one language floating around in my head, I think I can read with a heightened sense of linguistic difference. And above all, I can watch the next generation, or generations now, take ideas forward in ways that I could never have guessed at. And the papers we've heard today, in particular, I would say from former students, from Edwin and also especially from Loredana, indicate just how ideas can be taken forward. And I'm going to end with three verses from a poem by an Irish writer. 
It's a poet called Catherine Tynan, and it's the title poem from an anthology of Irish women's verse, which I was given by one of my students, John McDonough, who is now teaching in Limerick, another one that went on into academic life, and it's called Pillars of the House. The poem is a prayer, really, by a mother to be allowed a long enough life to see her children grow and go out into the world. And it's especially poignant for me today with my biological children here present, my student children here present, and my mother, my own mother, who many of you know and many of you have sat round a table with, age 92 and in hospital. I'm going to read just three verses. The first, one from the middle, and the last. I am the pillars of the house, the keystone of the arch am I. Take me away, and roof and wall would fall to ruin utterly. I am the house, from floor to roof. I deck the walls, the board I spread. I spin the curtains, warp and woof, and shake the down to be their bed. I am their wall against all danger, their door against the wind and snow. Thou whom a woman laid in manger, take me not till the children grow. Thank you.